0: Pam Ochoa, I have a question for you, and my question is: You're a bowler. You bowl often. You go out and you. This is how you decompress. It's how you relax. It's how you have fun. So my question is: Is you know, I'm I'm always interested in the like. You bowl a lot, so I want to know. You know, do you have like, are you down with like the bowling techniques? Do you flick your wrist a certain way to make it move? Uh, Are you uh, just throwing it down there? Are you like a casual bowler? Do you consider yourself an undiscovered professional bowler? All of that and more on this. So you can take this however you want. I'm just curious about your bowling life. Could you describe what type of bowler you are?
1: I'm a bowler that enjoys bowling. I would not call me an undiscovered professional. There are a lot of people way better than me, (laughs) I can assure you. I know how to finish a game, I guess. Now, uh, yeah, I used to bowl when I was younger a lot. I mean, my son and I were both on like a mother-son kind of league when when they were younger. And and, uh, yeah, I have my own ball, but I haven't used it in a while. So I usually just use the house balls. But the house balls, I just kind of have to... I look at the arrow, and I I pretty much know what arrow is going to get me a strike or get me close to one. And then I concentrate on my spares. You know, I try really hard not to get a split. And then uh, the ones that are hard are the ones that are at an angle. And sometimes I'm pretty good at, you know, when there's only one left, you know, got to try to hit that one. So, yeah, I mean, I hold my own. Yeah, I used to be on the league when we were working together. I had to leave every Thursday. I had to go to my league, but um, when uh, I became um, my daughter, who is, um, you know, she's got her child, and so I had to start kind of babysitting. So I got out of that league. So, but yeah, the other day I went bowling with my brother, and he was ahead, but he forgot I know how to close.
0: <laughs> so, so I beat him
1: by a little bit.
0: I, what made me think about this was I've been in your training session for a week, right? You're doing Addos, uh-huh. and we've been sitting there, and you were talking about one of the days, like you went and bowled afterwards. And I was like, Holy, I don't even know how she has energy to go bowl after all the what we're doing in training. But then uh, I my son has a Wii upstairs. He has, he loves, people, people don't know, he loves technology, and he has like, we have so many game systems, most of them don't even work. He just like, Plays with them, experiments with them, all that other stuff. But anyway, he was jumping on the Wii and we bowled back and forth. And I swear that I did not lose on purpose, but he straight up beat me in a game of bowling. Uh, And it was just one of those moments that I was like, holy crap. Like I can't, just took me down and all that other stuff. So it was interesting, but (laughs) yeah, he just totally beat me. Right. It's just,
1: well, um, I do have an Xbox One that has a bowling game, and I do play it.
0: Oh. I do
1: do that. So I do play the virtual bowling as well. I do like to bowl.
0: Well, with that, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Craft and Draft. We're not a bowling podcast, but, you know, I felt like today I wanted you guys to learn a little bit about more. Cho and her bowling life. I don't know. I used to like <laughs> bowling a lot. I used to go quite a bit, but I haven't been. I think it'd be fun now to take my son to do something like that.
1: Oh, I bet um, he would like it.
0: Yeah, I think he would too. You know, he might not. The thing is, is sometimes he'll just like become disinterested, and then we'll have to go somewhere else. So I need to make sure to be, though. You know, just make sure it's uh not something that we put money into and then it's just like, oh, well, all right, we're leaving. That happens quite a bit with my son. But, you know, it is what it is. But here in Craft and Draft, ladies and gentlemen, we talk about writing workshop in actual public school classrooms. We bring our own insights. We try to highlight other people's insights. And really, these are just discussions. We just, we're passionate about this stuff. We're not, you know, we don't consider ourselves at the, at the top tier of anything. It's just two people who love P.D., pedagogy teaching kids all of that stuff and we just love having these conversations so hopefully you're here for a great conversation around workshop and everything else that it has to do with but uh today we're actually going to be diving back into the subject of grades what does it mean to pass in the world today? What does it mean to fail? And really answering the question, is it ever appropriate for a kid to fail a class? I don't know. I have a feeling we're going to go deep on this one. This was inspired by a question, which I'm going to read in just a moment. But welcome to Craft and Draft, ladies and gentlemen. All righty. So like we've said several times on the show, we love bringing people's queries, thoughts, ideas to the podcast. We've done it several times before. And someone came in to the Craft & Draft Workshop website like you can over there at craftanddraftworkshop.com and submit a question directly To us. And sometimes we take these questions we'll use as an intro. Sometimes we want to spend a whole episode on it. So that's what this one is going to be as well. But Pam, I have a question here from Amanda Rose. Okay. Hello, Amanda. Yes. Hi, Amanda. Thank you for writing in. But Amanda says, do you ever have a student that fails your course? Is it from a lack of work completion or for another reason, many students are below grade level in reading and that intuitively seems the way students should repeat a course, but that is not what happens. In my district, almost all students who fail a course do so due to an excessive amount of missing work. Therefore, they are failing due to a behavior problem. Dot, dot, dot. So I'm... I'm, in classic craft and draft fashion, I imagine we're going to meander through this answer um, but I feel like before we even talk about failure, okay before that that's going to be I feel like we have we can't start there right we've got to work our way to there and assess all the things happening here in terms of grading um, what we've talked about grading a little bit on this podcast, but w- you know this is the question that you and I get asked a lot whenever we do trainings or whatever, grades always come up. Some people are very positive about grades. Some people are negative. Some people are like, I don't know. I hate grades, but I have to do them. So let's just start there. Let's clarify just some some concrete beliefs about grades, some philosophical beliefs, and that way people kind of know what we're working with, especially if they're new to the podcast. So what's your stance on grading? Do you have like a, a way that you have come to think about grades in your workshop over time?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I guess so. I kind of agree. I think a lot of our grades are actually based on behavior. Um, But at the same time, I think that you can find grades. So I'm typically finding them in their process. So I like to give them credit in their process. So pretty much everybody in my class starts out with a 100. And it's, um, if they, you know, if they don't, uh, complete something, or if they don't follow what I'm expecting, which would be, I come and look at their notebook, you know, their craft book or their draft book, and that let's say they just haven't done anything, then of course I can't give them that 100, but I will give them an opportunity to make it up, you know, and I expect them to have it done. So I'll come back around and say, you know, okay, I've got, I'm going to give you until this window of time to get it done. So. And I just stay at them, but I I typically start out where they all have a one hundred. That's what I tell them. Y'all have a one hundred. It's up to you to keep that one hundred, and you do that by just doing everything that I expect you to do. So where I, where I, what I used to do is I would just go in and I would look like at their notebooks, and I would walk around and I'd say, "Okay, you did about eighty percent of what I expected." So there you go. Uh, So I might do something like that, Uh, but I typically have to give a number grade because that's what our uh, stakeholders understand. So I think a lot of times the number grade is because of what our stakeholders have. me, I think it's a middle level a middle high low, which I think I've talked about this you know so if high would be you've met every one of my expectations and then it maybe even exceeded it. Middle, so I like to kind of look and see where they're at. Middle would be, you know, everybody about average, and then low is where you're not quite there. And I like to look at it based on their standards. And then from there, I might assess a grade. To me, a a grade is not, I just don't think it's that big a deal, personally. Um, I do think it's a big deal when you get in high school because they're fighting for that GPA because of the way our system is set up. Uh, the GPA becomes very important. So when you're assessing grades, I would rather start with a 100 and and move down uh, there uh, because that 95. If you just give a 95, just a blanket 95 that they did it. Let's just do a 95. Well, if you do that, that might hurt them in their GPA. So I think I think you have to look at all kinds of of areas uh, when you're assessing grades. But I like to assess their ability. Uh, I take a lot of other kind of data to let me know if they're they're keeping up with me or not. Grades are just something I do to make sure that my stakeholders have a nice understanding of where we're at. I don't know. Is that a good answer? I don't know. Yeah. This one's the tough one.
0: It is, and it, so this is a contentious issue, too, right? By the way, if people can hear my Very computer my computer's fan. I'm currently testing out this camera system for those people who've been following me. And it looks cool. It does look cool. I appreciate that. But none of it to me, by the way, my wife is entirely in charge of this, of anything aesthetic that I do. I'm, I'm just someone who I green light and then she tells me what to do. But, um, so that my, my computer, I'm, I'm testing out some different ways to run things. So if you hear that, I apologize. I won't stay on for too long, but so grading is really fascinating. Uh, to me because it's something that it's so entrenched in the educational system that it is, it, you know, we <laughs> we're we're all subject to it to some degree, right? And mm-hmm. you know, I I have debates about this quite often. I I lean towards making grades less of an issue in the classroom, but I can't just say that. I think it's as someone who. Is a part of these conversations and you have to podcast and books and stuff like that. Like you have to, you can't just say, I think this, I think that's wrong. Like I feel like I have to kind of explore this and really examine it from every angle. But so there was one thing I want to bring up that is interesting to me at least where I was, I was on Instagram and I was just kind of scrolling and uh, I had a teacher that was talking about test corrections and she had said that she gives the way she does test corrections is she gives half points back, right? And so in my head, I was like, why? Like, if, if they're legitimately getting their points back, if they are legitimately uh, doing something that proves that they know it, not that they just took something and, like, you know, took a test back, just circled a different answer and brought it back, something like that, something that was substantial that showed them that they gained the knowledge, right? Then I was like, why not – give them full points. And I made this post. I said, why not give a student back full credit for test corrections? If they got it right, how do they deserve partial points? That was my point. And it was, this was contentious. I had quite a few people, uh, come out of the, the shadows of the comments section and kind of push back. Mostly the biggest pushbacks had to do with high school to your point to where if, and I'm interested to see how that actually plays out in our conversation, because I don't know what the right answer is in terms of high school. So for middle school, I think it's less important because the grade isn't the be all end all. You know, it's not their GPA. It is what it is. I think very much middle school is still just kids being kids, right? They're still learning how to do school. They're learning how to be independent. They're learning how to kind of, uh, you know, self-manage, so to speak. And then once you get to high school, it changes a little bit, but I don't know, like, uh, like in terms of grading, assessment is pretty good to where, you know, I used to do that. I used to give kids, like, all right, so get this test, go revise it, you can get your half points back. But, the, like, now I'm like, why? Why should I punish the learner for learning even if they learned later than they should have? Or even, maybe not even learning, right? Maybe they just demonstrated it later because we all, we all, I mean, we should know. That multiple choice test, anything like that, like that, that is not a clear, it's not the most clear indicator. It is an indicator. I'm not saying that they don't show us something, but they, there, there's more ways to assess learning than just those things. So I don't know. I guess it comes down to the type of test. What is it? But do you see anything, uh, at the but two questions, do you, at the middle school level, do you think it's wrong to give back full points if they truly are demonstrating mastery, um, on an assessment, regardless of when. Um, and then same same question for high school. Is there, is the difference in high school because GPA uh, hunting, or so to speak, is so focused on? D- does it change once we reach high school?
1: Well, I don't think it should change once you reach high school. I think it should be about the learning. And so if it's about the learning, um, then... That's how you should be grading. So therefore, in my mind, it's not it's purely acceptable uh, to give them their full credit if they've if they've learned it. If they've mastered it, then why can't they get a mastery grade?
0: Yeah. And that shouldn't um, affect their GPA, right? Like, if we,
1: no. So, if like, it, let's, that's let, how your system, so if, if, as long as you're fair to everybody, as long as you have, everybody has equal opportunity to do the same thing. Now, if you're cherry picking and you're saying, well, you know, you're really close to that, you know, 4.5 or 4.12 or whatever it is. Um, and so I'm going to let you do that. But over here, you, you know, you might make a 70. You know, I think, I think you can't cherry pick.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess this would come down to people. So if people really wanted to explore this, I think at the high school level, and there's probably people that are already doing this, probably listening to this thing. We already do this thing, but there, if people really wanted to kind of free up the grading at the high school level, uh, specifically for assessments and whatnot, I feel like it would, it would take, um, a policy such as, you know, you have until this time to make up the grade, right? Right, it, that window it, of time, mm-hmm. and I and I think that window, like I think a week, like I think that's unfair, like for kids that that might need remediation or that have gaps in their learning or stuff like that. I think you know, in my mind, grading period seems the most fair of a compromise. In in mm-hmm. in the world being perfect, I wouldn't care if they could if they could take that first that if we if we look at fiction at the beginning of the year and don't look at it again until the end of the year and they're able to show me mastery by the end of the year like i feel like that should be able to affect the grade that's perfect world scenario like i'm i understand that there's a million systematic complications with that yada yada yada. but i don't see how giving kids until the end of like the grading period or so like for us it's six weeks some people do nine weeks um etc etc like why would that be an issue
1: the only issue is if I don't have a problem with taking the work as late as possible, but um, my problem is I have to have time to grade it. So I have to stop it in a way where I have time to grade it. So I'm I'm restricted within the the boundaries that are set up for me already in the system. So, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. But I do have a problem where I I, I I just tell the students, look, y'all are making me run out of time. I'm about to run out of time. I want to hit on high school just a little bit. I was up there for 15 years, and I taught, I taught ninth grade mainly. I did teach juniors. I did teach the junior theme. I taught sophomores. But I had, um, I had a, a, a teacher that taught juniors. She taught the AP subjects, and I taught the pre-AP subjects in ninth grade at that time. Only on level when it came up to at that time when I worked with her, I I taught uh, pre AP ninth grade, um, but I did not teach uh, you know the AP courses at that time. So anyway, the point is, she she's a great teacher, you know, and uh, very well respected. But she came down, and I was pretty young at the time, and she comes down to me and she says, Pam. I am trying to do a job where I am trying to teach these students how to do their best. I mean, they are going to be graded hard on this essay, the AP essays and on this test and they're and you giving them blanket 100s Apparently, I guess she thought that's what I was doing. And I might have been. I don't know. I know I was very young. But anyway, you just can't just give them 100s just because you like them. You can't give them 100s just because they turn in the work. You have to give them the grade based on your rubric. You know, so this was her advice to me. She said, because all these teachers below me who are giving these 100s just to be giving 100s is killing me up here because they think they're 100 writers. 100 point grade writers you know like they're at the top and I'm over here and now I'm having to tear them down because they are uh, you know I'm having to tear them down to build them back up and it's not it's not fair to them and so I thought that was a good point so it did make me change probably what I was doing or make me more alert as to am i actually grading it based on the rubric that i've that has been set aside. And so, so when you, when you're looking at essays, I think you do need to stick to the rubric. If that's, you know, whatever the rubric is, then I think you need to set to that. But I think sometimes if we just give blanket 100s on these, um, those particular things, then you're looking at, uh, could be a problem in the future. So I think they need to get what they get based on what they can do. So, uh, So, you know, but, but when it comes to the process writing, if they do the process, then uh, to me, those are my daily grades are my process grades. And I don't have a problem with those being one hundreds. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So I want to, I want to probe just a a little bit deeper just to add more nuance to this, which is, is grading in reading different than grading in writing? We know not every teacher has separate classes. Some teachers just do either or some have both. Etc. Etc. Some of them not even different. Like for us, for instance, for people that don't know, sixth and seventh grade, we we essentially we have a block, a ninety-minute block or so, and that's reading and writing. But it's still treated separately in the district. There are still, yeah,
1: we, we have, two, have two separate grade books for them.
0: Yeah, we have two separate grade books and everything like that. And every campus deals with that in different ways. Um, but that so that and then when they get to 8th grade it becomes 1 it's a it's like a 45 46 minute yeah, class it's a or whatever
1: literature course
0: yeah it's okay. a literature course so we uh, understanding that we we have a lens that we're looking at this through but we're we're aware that everyone has different uh different realities that they're working with but if for all things being equal though is grades and reading do, do you treat your grades differently the in reading and writing is is what i'm trying to get to oh.
1: I, I, I base it on the the skill level, probably. Um, I don't know. I mean, you, there's, there's, you know, I want them to read so many books a year. I want them to always reach forward. I want them to be able to move um, their reading capabilities. And so I probably base it more on a growth situation. Does that make sense? So um, if there's growth, and I would give them credit for that growth. Um, if they're reading the books that I ask them to read and I go over there now for SSR, um, I they, they, again, I go back to where they start with that 100. And so everybody has a 100 if they do the SSR and they make sure they do the questions and all that kind of stuff. If I want to say questions, uh, I don't do like let's finish these worksheet questions. I typically debrief or I may ask them uh, to find things in their in their reading and if they're able to do that or if they keep up with their reading kind of with um, kind of like Penny Kittle does with her heart tracking their reading, you know, when, it, when did I start, when did I abandon it. You know, and I like to look at that and make adjustments. So if they're keeping up with those types of things and they're doing everything I ask, like in their craft book and all of that, then, then yeah, I give them the grade. So that's more of like the process grade. I guess it would be similar. But then when it comes to the actual uh, test, those tests are different than they are in writing for me. So the test is different. So therefore, we're, I assess them differently. So therefore, I guess you could say my grades are different. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, here's what I found because I feel like my – I mean, this might be an, an opportunity for growth for me, which is in writing, I'm very much more focused on the process, right? I mean, when we when we think of just this in terms of craft and draft, the, the grades definitely come from, you know, we – encourage people to, you know, set a a drafting quota, so to speak, kind of like Linda Reef talks about is, you know, kids will write this much uh, Mm -hmm. by the end of the week. It doesn't matter when. just as long as they kind of get there. And, you know, that can be a grade. And then uh, if there's a a revision practice, that can be a grade. There can be a grade that takes through in conferencing if people are, are done through that. But those are all pretty much like you're either doing it or not. Right. Right. And we, you know, I remember, I was thinking about this the other day, which is funny that it's coming up today on the podcast, but I was thinking about when you and I were kind of planning craft and draft, when you and I were slowly coming together as a meeting of the minds, trying to figure out a way to, trying to figure out a way to give a system for, for teachers to use that can show the the awesome, authentic work that they're doing in a system that's so data driven, right? Giving, just setting up a way to. Have this stuff make sense. I remember us in the parking lot. I remember we used to go out to the parking lot. We would have, as we're leaving, we'd have these long conversations. It'd take us like another 20 minutes. (laughs) Um, but we, we, I remember one day we were talking and we were talking about what it, what's authentic writing. What, what is, what, who's the judge of what good writing is? right and i think that this is an interesting conversation for english teachers because we're all kind of snobs right we all we all feel like we understand what quality writing is and it depends on the spectrum you're on you know some people are more willing to let in more but there's a lot of teachers who are very dogmatic about you know these this is this is the good writing this is what quality writing is this is this and i'm not saying anyone is more correct than the other i'm just saying we're passionate about this conversation. I remember having this conversation with you, and I was like, "So, how do we make that? How do we honor uh, the world of people who do believe high quality writing does look a certain way, but we also honor the growth and the process and the reality that even the the books that are considered the best in the canon, even the books that are considered best by modern standards, even the books that are have the highest ratings on Amazon or whatever." They still have people that hate those books, right? Not there's no book, there's no piece of writing that people hands over fist always support. There's always disagreement on on uh, the quality of writing, the quality of story, et cetera, et cetera. And you and I came together and were like, okay, so what does that look like in the grade book, right? Like we we were mm-hmm. like, what does this look like in a place where we honor the nuance of writing? education. And then we kind of came up with the, just focusing more on process, even when it comes to kids writing, uh, pieces, right. When they're creating pieces, it's creating rubrics about, what a poem should and shouldn't have. There's a way to do that. That's very limiting. You know, you have to have two metaphors and you have to have 16 lines and you have to rhyme, right? That's like an incredibly limiting way to do poetry. You're shaking your head. You know, we both don't.
1: It's already freaking me out.
0: (laughs) Yeah. We, we, but you've seen those, right? We have seen those rubrics. Um, I've and had people
1: to give them, I've had to use them yeah, because well, and, of the way that my team has decided or this or that, maybe not yeah. presently, but in the past,
0: hundred percent. Right. I've, I have definitely made a rubric that reads somewhat, maybe not for poetry, but like something that reads like that to where it's so, prescriptive. uh, yeah, prescriptive. Right. I mean, it's, it's literally trying, <laughs> it's the, it's the, it's the facade of authenticity. Right. So um, but then kind of on the other section, you know, there are ways to open that up a little bit, um, to where, you know, if you are focusing on figurative language, it can be more of a figurative language, you know, there uh, something in the rubric that says like, uh, a piece of figurative language that is present throughout your piece, right. Or a piece of symbolism, you can do that stuff too. And even that, I think that's better. And I think that's interesting. And I would be willing to talk with people about whether that's good or not, but, I, I I even go beyond that, and I'm like, who cares? Like, when I sit with a student, I want to know how they used our learning in their writing. How? What is present from what we've done in classroom? So, is there a mini lesson that inspired them? Is there a piece that inspired them? Uh, and then really look at what was their purpose. And then do they believe it was effective? And then have that conversation with kids in this final kind of assessment of their writing. There's more pieces to that, but for the sake of the podcast, I'll summarize it. But that, that process of just going, okay, so what was your goal with this? Okay, sweet. So their goal was to do this. And then we talked to the student about were they effective in it? And then we can talk about well, I think you were effective in that, or I think you know this was mostly effective, but I think you get lost here. But I, I don't think th- I think that conversation is so nuanced and so powerful. I don't see how we can give them an eighty-five for something, you know what I mean, or a seventy because if they're doing, if they're publishing regularly. So in in other words, I think the writing workshop grade should be much much more about process and pro not pr- process over product, right? Not so much the end goal because the end goal is going to be especially if they're authentically writing, it's going to be as varied as the students are varied in your classroom. So you can't set a general standard, but you can set a standard of, okay, you need to publish two pieces by the end of the six weeks. You need to have one piece published. That's gone through the entire publishing process. And so that humanizes that writing grade side. Now, all of that to say, the reading I treat entirely different. And I think this is a product of standardized tests a little bit and our pressure to do that because for people that do not know, you know, the, the focus of the government is almost entirely just on math and reading, um, which is wrong in my opinion, but it is what it is. So we have pressure to move the data on our reading test. A certain way. So a lot of my stuff is I do. Like we have like they need to get through like a certain amount of pages read. Like that can be a great. So that is process. The process of them reflecting on their reading in their craft book on the left side, connecting our mini lessons to their reading on the on the left side of their journals and whatnot. And that's powerful. But at the same time, the end product for them is if it's not a project, it's usually a test. And so their grades on the reading side tend to be on average, they're lower because of that standardized test at the end. And I, I don't know, like saying it this way, it makes me feel like I, we need to alter it even more, but it's like, I feel like we've, I feel like we're as broad as we can be. Uh, with the system at hand. like You can only do so much and and still be compliant within your job's parameters. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm rambling, so I'm going to pass it to you. Is there anything there that you want to comment on and you push back on or whatever? Ramble.
1: <laughs> Just I ramble for the next 30 minutes? <laughs> yeah, I mean... Um, yeah, I think the standardized test has definitely impacted the way the reading grades go. I think I agree with you there. I think, though, that... Um, one of the things that I told you I was riding on the other day, and that was Portfolio, talking about that. I think there's more than one way to skin this cat, so to speak. And, and by the way, I have two cats, and I would not hurt any children or any kitties. They're like my children. But anyway, um, so, but, but the thing is, is... I think like using portfolios, I think using project-based learning, I think uh, using just projects in general, I think varying up the way that you do your assessments. Uh, I think the conference that you're talking about, I think you can learn so much about that. Um, I've even been known to take their beginning and middle and end of the year test and kind of Probably not mathematically correct, but put some sort of number that kind of matches the growth that it's telling me about uh, for daily grades or even maybe assessments, depending on what I'm trying to show. Um, What I don't want, though, is I don't want if this child is going to take that standardized test in reading and there's no way they're going to get close to even approaching grade level, right? Right then I've got to make sure that they're not getting all 100s in my class because then that doesn't match. So I want to make sure that what I am showing in the grade book matches that end result some way or another. Does that make sense? I don't know how to go. I mean, I think grades are arbitrary personally. I think they're they're very personal. I think people do it the way they understand it. And I think for something so subjective. It really does impact people greatly and people put so much on it. But, but I do think that there needs to be a match of your grade book. I mean, they don't have to fail, but they at least need to probably be in the lower grades that pass if they're not going to pass that standardized test.
0: So you're hitting on something that, Uh you know, it, well, it's gonna it's gonna lead us back into you know officially answering these questions, right? I, I knew we needed to kind of meander through this and just kind of talk about it because there's so much. I refuse to believe that anything in education is black and white at this point. There's always so much to discuss. There's there's opinion. There's fact. There's policy. There's all kinds of stuff here. So when we look at these grades, what we're talking about here is you and I have similar outlooks on this, which is that grades are arbitrary. And I that, I think, is an immutable fact, It even in the instance that grades are not. So let me clarify that because I know it sounded like I just contradicted myself. So grades are arbitrary in the sense that let's say you lay out an entire rubric throughout your, let's just say a unit. You know exactly what it should look like if kids master content, right? You have laid out every aspect of that. So even on this, on this basic level, it's arbitrary because your, your level or your district's level or the state's level or the country's level, those levels are still arbitrary, right? Like there is no black and white. Oh, this child can now inference with fiction, Right, there's all kinds of nuance and subjectivity that goes into that, also the quality of the assessment, quality of the person reading the assessment, quality of the ability to analyze data um, so, so you i mean yeah there there's tons of variables, but it's so i don't I feel like some people break out in hives when we say that because then it becomes, well, what are grades, and I think that's a great question to ask. I think that's a strong question to ask in teaching is. What are grades? What do grades do? I had a great mentor one time that said, he goes, your grade book, if you're not using your grade book to build relationships, you're doing it wrong. And I've always loved that comment because it taught me that I'm not the, the hander, like the, I feel like a lot of people feel like, you know, I give the work, the kids do the work. I grade them based on their performance. I feel like that is a very common, uh, perspective on this. And if a kid fails then they deserve to fail, right? And if a kid fails repeatedly, not only should they get the grade that they deserve, but they should actually be punished for it. They should have a negative consequence based on that failure. Uh, so you're taking something like learning, you're applying a standard to it. And you're saying, if you do not meet this standard, the entire burden is on you and the punishment only goes to you the child. And I feel like people that hold this stance either fully accept that. And I have trouble with that. But I also feel like a lot of people that accept that haven't really questioned what, what does education mean in the first place? Right. I don't want to get too esoteric about this, but we, I mean, seriously though, like when you, when you think about learning and kids and the process of learning, like, do we really want our educational institutions to be places that give out work and then punish kids for not rising to the work. Whose fault is it that they didn't do the work? We've had conversations. I've had conversations with teachers who they fully blame the kid for not doing the work. I had a student, I had a teacher one time I was sitting with and she was saying that kids had a bunch of zeros in her class. She was like the kids, the average in my class is like a 50 kids are starting doing the work. And I said, okay, so what are you doing about that? And she goes, well, it's not my problem. They need to be doing the work. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Like, Philosophically speaking, if you believe that kids should be punished for not doing the work, if you think kids are lazy, if you think all of these things, awesome. Hold that belief. It doesn't change the fact that they're not doing your work. Whose job is it to get kids to do the learning? It's ours. So even if that's true, I'll, let's, let's give you that argument. Whose job is it to get kids to learn? Whose job is it, Miss Ochoa? Is it the kid's job to innately know why this stuff is important to them, or is it the education is it the is it the institution? Is it the teacher? and I, I want you if you disagree, I want you to push back on that like is it like is it okay to say the kid didn't do this, therefore they get a zero, whatever? they fail because they didn't do this, or does that are we missing the mark when we say those things?
1: I feel like I've gotten set up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's that's not a, a setup. setup. I'm teasing you. Um, well, let's see here. I, I, I have set in those conversations. I know what you're saying, and to me, if you have a problem, let's say if you've got, typically, you're going to have an outlier that's not going to do the work. Okay, you're going to probably have, I would say if if you have above 10% not wanting to do your work, then I think you need to, to actually reflect. So when I'm looking down and I'm seeing all these zeros, and COVID was probably the first time that all these kids that were online, they were not turning in the the work, quite a bit of them. So, But it was my job to make sure they understood it. I have to ask myself, why are they not turning it in? Is it because they don't understand the work? Is it because they're having computer problems at home? Uh, or is it because uh, they're not interested in the work? Because if they're not interested in the work, then what am I doing to get them to be interested in the work? If I'm putting out Work that's just, I'm sorry, crappy work, right? And I'm just, and what I mean by that is I'm just throwing together a bunch of questions and say, answer these questions after you read this text. If you do this, you know, if I'm not giving them thought provoking questions, if I'm not giving them questions that cause them to reflect upon their own work, their own learning, their own craft their their reading and they're writing if i'm not getting them to do those things and they're not going to be interested in it so what am i doing so yeah i think i think a large uh responsibility does fall on the shoulder of the teacher especially if you're looking at your whole class now and and you're seeing like if there's like a majority of them not doing the work I do know that um over the years I think it's kind of getting to be harder to get the kids to do the work um than it was when I when they were younger because or when I was when I was younger because it just was expected that you did it and so I don't know it's just a different it's a different time
0: is that a, so it. here's my question I have mm-hmm. I I think my answer's clear on this but I genuinely want your input which is is it okay to say this is the work that's that needs to happen if you don't do it you have a negative consequence like is that pedagogy that book it like cuz you said it was a thing back then and there's a lot of people that believe that we've watered down education that we have uh, simplified it to a degree that anyone can pass and we're failing kids by by virtue, not necessarily failing them, but we're failing them by not holding them accountable. Is it, is it, is that a correct response? Is it, and this is getting back to um, Amanda's question, which is, you know, she has kids, according to her, the people that are, the kids that are failing are kids that are failing because there, there's an excessive amount of missing work. So in this, in this context, Is it okay to say, this was the standard we set. We said, you have to do this work. You're not doing the work, therefore you fail. Is that an okay thing to happen in education today?
1: You know, you really have me thinking, and I'm I'm not really appreciating that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is my Uh, revenge for the week of training.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's what we get. (laughs) You know, um, Gosh, and I, there might not even be I, I a right you, answer, right? No, there's not, but but I want to I want to answer it and I'm thinking about my own way of doing things. And one of the things that I do that I think I don't have that big of a problem most of the time. And that is um, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna cancel out COVID. That was just a weird year, but but all the other years, um, what I do is I have the kids. I just give it back. I just give back the work. It's not up to my standard. I'm sorry. But um, gosh, you just, you didn't do this. So I'll have a conference and I'll say, okay, you've got this many days. I need you to do it. Can you please do it tonight? Or uh, I'll let you do it. How about this? I'll work with you a little bit. I'll let you do it when you walk in tomorrow. And, and you know, I give it back to them until I'm happy, until I'm satisfied with it. So by the time I get it back, then it's already it's good work. Does that make sense? So I give I give students opportunities to redo until they mastered it, and I don't take points off when they do that, so, because they turned in something at the right time. You know, I just don't take off a lot of points for late work. I just don't.
0: I, see, and I don't either. And I I don't I don't take off any points for late work. Actually, I'm I'm if it if. I have to have a, a hard cutoff just because of grades. Um, but within that grading period, it's like if you get it to me, you get it to me. But I also don't assign things like that really. You know what I mean? Like I in my class, I don't I don't put myself in the scenario for someone to need to get something done uh, within like that day. Like I don't assign an assignment that day that needs to be done that day or by tomorrow. They have the the writing is almost entirely, it's, it's mini lesson focused, but it's, it's entirely based on their independent reading. So it takes them however long it takes, but I don't assign any of that. It's the process of them interacting with their books every week. So that gets negated. I'm not handing them reading worksheets with questions and stuff. Every once in a while I'll do a formative where like I'll hand them like a passage or something with like a few questions just to check to see if we're on the right path and to kind of, you know, cause I do have kids that need to take the test or whatever, And then in writing, it's entirely based on their process in publishing. So uh, that problem is solved a little bit for me. But uh, can I tell a story real quick? So I failed every math class in high school, like almost, like at least a semester. So I was I remember being like, you know, I was supposed to be a junior, but I was technically a sophomore because I was in sophomore classes that I had to retake and everything like that. I think to that stuff and I'm like, I get why I didn't pass. Like I didn't do the work. I failed the test, all of that. Did it help me? Did it help me at all going through that? And I think that's the key question. We, th- I think we think about grades in terms of justice, right? You deserve this. It's justice that you are held back a grade. It's justice that you have to go to summer school. It's justice that you have to feel the repercussions of what you did, regardless of your circumstance, right? For people that don't know, you know, my mom was in jail. I lived on my own for a good point, point of time. I was in an abusive household with drug addicts and everything. So none of that mattered, right? It was justice that I failed. It was justice that I had to do those things. And I feel like this, it, we have to ask the question, who is being served here? Does it make the teacher feel better to fail a kid? Sometimes it does, right? I've had conversations with teachers that are like, no, they deserve, we had conversations during COVID. We we actively as a campus decided we weren't gonna give a kid a failing grade lower than a 60 because of the, the circumstances, being online, right? Being a part of this. I remember being in a meeting with your principal. I was on the COVID uh I was on the COVID, the, like the meetings we had in the summer going into this last year where we were going to like, where we were trying to measure what we wanted to do, what we, how are we going to do this? And everyone was advocating that if kids don't do the work online, they should fail. And your principal, well, your ex-principal now because you're coming to our campus, but you're at the time, your principal and me, him and I stood up and were like, no, you can't you can't give kids zeros and 20s and 15s for this circumstance uh, because it's how just is that like who does it who does it help does it help the teacher feel better because they assigned the work and the kid didn't do it or does it actually help the kid learn and i think that is what this whole thing comes down to if your grades are doing nothing but punishing kids then i think you're doing grades wrong however if your grades are serving to get kids to be more engaged learn come to tutorials all of those things like if you're effectively if your grade assigning is effectively getting kids more engaged to learn more, then I think you're doing it correctly. I don't know is that a good summarization of this problem?
1: yeah I think you're I think you're right I think I think when you look at your grades and I think if they are as miss um, Rose said, uh, based on behavior, and you got to really think about yourself. I mean, think about that. If they don't put their name on their paper, and you give them minus ten, that's behavior, isn't it? That's not mastery of the content.
0: And who does that help? I mean, I think the it even doesn't like... really
1: help anybody. Why don't you hand it back to them? Let them put their name on it, and then you take it in. You know, yeah. and you tell them, "Look, I can't grade this if I don't have your name on it. Can you please put your name on it now, please?" Now you know in the future you might have another teacher that you know. will you know, so you work with them. I try to work with them like that. Um, if they turn it in late and you give them those grades for that, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's behavior. So you have to ask yourself, what is what do your grades actually represent? You asked earlier, and you answered it, and that was, what are grades? To me, a grade is a way for the teacher to communicate the, um, I guess, the progress that our student, their student is making in your class. Now, if the, but I don't think it's for punishment. I don't think it should be a punishment, right? I have a little story, just a real quick one. My brother still talks about it today. It's not about me, but it is about my brother. And uh, everything's about my brother. I, if y'all know, I talk a lot about my brother because he's pretty amazing. But anyway, but this particular case, um, he had forgotten to turn in a project and the teacher promised him she would pass him in history, if he would turn it in. And, you know, in Texas, we're big uh, American football people, right? Big football people. Well, my brother is a, was a big deal football player. And uh, anyway, and he uh, he did the work. My dad, who was a teacher up there, made sure he turned it in, walked him to the class, because that's how my parents are. You did what you're told. Um, he did it. They turned it in, and she failed him with a 69. And he didn't get to play football. So guess what he remembers? He remembers doing a project, he feels lied to, and he didn't get to play football. So, so who that's was all helped he remembers. In, who was about helped that. in that
0: situation. Nobody who felt was better at the end of that.
1: I think I think his history teacher was proud of herself, but I don't think it helped him any. And if we're here for the students, then I do think that's a a valid question. Who are we helping? Now, sometimes we are stuck within, and that's why I was saying the stakeholder understands the grades A, B, C, D, 100 through uh, 50. You know, they understand those grades, that's what they were raised with. We have not been able to, I mean, the best grades I think would be, if you could, anecdotal grades, but you're dealing with 180 kids. We're not going to, or, or less, I'm sorry, just depending on your school. I've had as many as 176, sorry. But I think really, you know, you're dealing with over hundred kids a day, so creating those anecdotal notes and putting them in a form for this for the parent would be difficult i think as a as a big you know as a whole process like a whole system so what's easier what's faster what's cheaper less expensive those grades. So we have to work within the parameter of those grades. But I think if you're actually looking at that grade, that grade should interpret to you something. If my students are in the 70s, then I know for sure that if they're in the 70s or in the 60s, but in the 70s, then they are not performing where they need to be performing. And so what I need to do is make sure that's my group that I intervene with. My kids that are making A's and I've had them where it didn't matter what I threw at them there was a 100. I had to give them a 100. They were the best. So what am I doing to encourage that kid to increase or am I not doing anything for him to stretch or her to stretch themselves so that that um that they have to be stretched. So what am I doing? How am I moving these kids forward? And my grades need to interpret that for me. And that way I can explain it to the parents. So that's kind of where I'm at with it, I guess. I mean, this is really a hard topic.
0: Well, of course it is. And I'm, this is going to be something that we cycle in quite a bit. And yeah. Uh, it's a topic that I think we need to think about more and all honestly. And, you know, I love Alfie Cohn's take on grading. If people have not heard Alfie Cohn or read his stuff, just look him up. He has great blogs about grading and whatnot. And I, he, he speaks in a, Sometimes he speaks, you know, kind of like an idyllic world and we're not quite there yet, but I think it's worth reading. But I want to, I want to circle back just to her first, Amanda's first two questions kind of cap this conversation off to make sure that we cover this, um, at least for her during this instance. But it says, so her first two questions are, do you ever have students that fail your course? Is it from a lack of work completion or for another reason? She talks about later, she says, you know, kids, she has a lot of kids that are below grading level or grade level. And so that intuitively, you know, it feels like, well, if you're not at grade level yet, then you should, you know, fail or you, you know, there should be something that is happening, some type of intervention, whether that's a failure to keeping you behind, whether that's putting you in remedial classes, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I, I gotta say, I agree with her that, that intuition, right? Not completing work is not an indication that you can't do the work, Right. However, yeah. if, a, if a kid does the work and demonstrates that they can't do the work or are struggling with the work, I think that's different. But I find that – so I had a student this year. Um, he's on the autism spectrum. He's in general ed classes. He didn't do crap online, okay? Not one thing. However, he would take the test. And he, every, he made 100 every single time, okay? He came into class. Yeah. I got him to work a little bit more because I'm there, and I can encourage him different ways in person rather than through a zoom and whatnot, and um, so I got him to work a little bit, but he didn't do all of it still one hundreds, right? Um there are places, and there are philosophies about grading where that kid would still fail, even if he's doing the test, he would still fail. I think I don't remember who the thinker is. Our our partner in seventh grade, Miss Burton, she would tell me because she quotes them all the time. But the idea that if a kid can pass the test you're giving without doing any of the work, they should pass your class. And I think that's an interesting argument because that's what it, that if we're doing assessment correctly, at least in the terms of multiple choice assessment, then it should be a summarization, so to speak, of their learning, what they've what they've accomplished, what they can demonstrate. Um, and if a kid passes it, let's say they do nothing and they pass every one of your tests. Should that kid fail? I don't think so. No, and, didn't pass them. and that's interesting, right? So to go to her, she, a lot of her. it sounds like the people in their district or in their school, they're being failed for zeros. And so my follow up question would be, do you have evidence that they can do the work? Because if they're just failing because of zeros, I think that is an inequitable, uh, I think that is an inequitable practice for the types of learners because if they're neurodiverse, if they have different things going on, they have trauma at home, like there's all kinds of reasons why they might be doing the work. But if they can pass the test, the final assessment, the finals, if they're in high school, whatever it is, who cares? Like that. Like that's that's my stance on that.
1: Well, that actually happens to a lot of GT or gifted students. Yeah. Uh, they don't feel the need to do this. Now. So I have an, uh, an example. My son was not really – uh diagnosed or not diagnosed or whatever, but identified as GT. He didn't do something on one of the Hawaiian states test or whatever, but he's very smart. And so uh his teacher called and said he will not take notes. He will not take notes. So I'm like, Patrick, can you just take the notes so I don't have to keep talking to the teacher? He's like, Mom. We're going to take notes on Charles Dickens. Okay, that's what they were doing. It was great expectations. And he said, Mom, I don't need to take the notes. I guarantee you, I don't have to take the notes. I'm going to just, and I'm going to show you, I'm not going to take the notes. Everybody else in the class is taking the notes, and they will make a lower grade than me. So sure enough, he didn't take the notes. He gets a zero for the notes, right? He gets a 100 for the test, He didn't need to take the notes. I said, okay, then are you okay living with an 80 or a 70? And he goes, yeah, I don't, the grade's not that important to me because I don't want to waste my time doing things that I don't need to do. And I'm like, all right, whatever. I lost that one, but I felt like, I felt his pain. I felt his pain, but it did put me in to know my students. I think it's very important to know your students. And... Um, there are a lot of gifted kids that will not do the work, but all I have to do is talk to them, and I know they know the work. I have I had another one. I'm like you. I had one very similar. Uh, it was like absolutely nothing. I called the dad was distraught. He won't do his work. Well, of course, um, our district said if you were failing at a certain time, then you had to come back to school no matter what. Right? So he came back to school. He was in my class. I'm glad he was in my class because. I talked to him. I'm like, so tell me, why wouldn't you do the work? He goes, well, I just don't, I mean, I just didn't really want to do all that computer stuff. Well, sure enough, I mean, when he would take one of those tests, he scored, I mean, he, on the state test, he scored, he mastered on the state test in reading. So, I mean, does he pass? Does he fail? Technically, he should have failed my class. I passed him because he's got a mastery So he's not going to go to summer school. Why would he need to go to summer school when he could master the state test, which is our minimum requirement for the state? So, yeah, I've I've had both of those. But, yeah, listening to my son that just kind of brought that up. So, um, yeah, I do not have kids that are failing. If they can actually master, like through the test or through conversation, those things, if I know they can do it and move forward, then there's no reason to hold them back.
0: And I I, and this is the, I guess, the challenge that I want to kind of push back to Amanda, and you know, really look at what is happening in your campus. And if it is, you know, if kids aren't doing the work and they're failing, then I think that's a, that's a conversation to have about, you know, whether kids should fail or get put in remedial classes and stuff like that. You know, there is still an expectation, you know, we try to be very real about this, right? I work at a campus that lives the life of not hitting percentages and having the state stare at you and. And stuff like that. Like I'm under no circumstance am I trying to push some some pie in the sky ideology devoid of reality, right? Regardless of what my opinion is, I understand the restrictions that we have. So my response, I guess, to to cap off this to Amanda is really look at, you know, if, if there's kids that are not doing the work and still passing, then I think the work that needs to change is from the teacher. I think the teacher needs to find new ways to engage kids, new ways to run the classroom, new way, or maybe just that kid, right? Just some hardcore differentiation for this child that is so anti your work, um, but can pass your test. Right. Um, but, and if that is happening and kids are still failing, so let's say it is happening. Let's say kids are uh they're they're not doing the work and they're passing the tests and so they're showing mastery in the ways that they need to, then I, I would say talk to your admin about it and be an advocate for those kids and be be someone that sticks up for the 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 varied experiences that we have in the school. But if kids are general genuinely failing and they can genuinely not really show mastery, regardless of the medium, right? Like, they can't do a, a standardized test. Their projects are bad. Their writing's bad. Their reflections are bad. You know, all of this stuff. There's just really no evidence of that learning. Then the conversation becomes, okay, so how do we how do we move away from punishment? Because pu- if you punish a kid like that, you're not doing anything good. Right. You're, you're not. The, there's clear research um, that I should have pulled up. Um, But there's research that shows that failing in retention really doesn't do anything for the kids in the first place So our schools and our admin and our teachers and our Our just uh, education as institution. We have to ask the better questions not How can this kid get how can we punish them into submission, but how do we create a system? That genuinely helps the kid that's failing that genuinely helps the kid that has gaps and and check teacher ego at the door. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you feel better because you failed a kid with a 40 rather than a 60, right? Failing's failing. And it it comes down to what what are the grades doing? Are they helping or hurting? Is the system helping or hurting? And if the answer is hurting, then what can we do to fix that? And I, I think that this is why this grades conversation is so nuanced is because there's so many variables, but Hopefully, after an hour of us kind of bouncing around on this, um, there was some clarification. Pam Ochoa, before we close, do you have a closing comment you would like to give Amanda on her grading journey, her thinking journey?
1: Well, I think sometimes it's difficult to change other people's opinions. So, like, if that's what's happening in a district, I think that's really difficult. But what you are responsible for is what happens in your classroom. So I think put the students first self-reflect and um uh, but i just think if you put those students first and you find out what their needs are i think you can't go wrong
0: and that is it for this episode of craft of the draft ladies and gentlemen that's pamela cho i'm jacob and we are two seventh grade english teachers in the state of texas doing what we do best, which is workshop, loving workshop, letting kids read and write. Hopefully this conversation was nuanced. If we didn't address an issue that you think we should have addressed, if we were wrong, that submit a question area at craftandjobworkshop.com is for you. You can submit a question. If you want to follow up, you can submit your own questions, thoughts, musings, all of that. That is for you. We would love for this podcast to be even more listener driven. No question is a dumb question. So we'll take them pontificate upon them hopefully and then make them good you know it's always good just to hear different people talk about uh similar issues common concerns and whatnot so if you like this episode hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes they drop every single friday leave a rating if you enjoyed Share it with your plc your pln shout out to us on twitter instagram facebook all of that jazz come back next week where we will dive into yet another conversation about this ladies and gentlemen, but for everything else know that we are here for you.